it's so appropriate for us as a covenant people uh, to sing about the goodness of God. Uh, that's nothing more appropriate could we sing than uh, praising the goodness of God. Uh, as your representative, uh, I have been carrying the gospel around the world for two or three decades now. And I've been carrying the gospel to anyone who would receive me in the name of Jesus Christ, anyone who would open a, a village, a home, a, a, an opportunity. Uh, I would go and have a cup of chai and sit down and do my best to share the gospel and to see if we could have a, a, a conversation about Jesus Christ. For the most part, I mean, I've been chased away some, but for the most part, people have been kind and I have been received. Uh, they have uh, put me up many times uh, in their homes. The accommodations that I have slept in have been crude by your standards. Not at all acceptable by Western culture standards. But I have always known that whoever has put me up has always given me the very best they have. Even if by your standards it wasn't enough, by their standards it was the very best they could offer to someone. And a few days ago in the Himalayas, I'm just trying to think, four days ago, I was in the foothills of the Himalayas looking out at the mountains, and it's very steep mountains, it's a very thick jungle, and just, it's amazing what four days can do. Four days ago in the Himalayas, the mosquitoes were a problem. I'm itching all over still. Like a pincushion, I have been bitten. The mosquitoes were a problem. And I didn't, I, I haven't traveled internationally now since COVID. Uh, you know, you guys know I used to go like this. I'm out of practice, Brenna. I, I made so many rookie mistakes on this trip. I've forgotten every trick I knew about how to do this right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I forgot all insect repellent and flashlights and headlights, all the things I know to bring, uh, I, I forgot to do it. Mosquitoes were a big problem. Uh, the hot water was a problem, non-existent there for a few days, and there's nothing but washing, and the water was ice cold. You could not get under it, uh, so we didn't really bathe too well, for it, so don't sniff too close. We didn't bathe too well. No, we're good now. But for a few days, we didn't bathe too well. But here's what I want to say to you. Lives were being changed. So totally worth it. You, you can suffer for a few hours <laughs> if somebody's life is going to be transformed for Jesus Christ. Uh, where we were training up our, our leaders, they put us into some rooms there. And uh, it was a nice facility by their standards. And uh, I was tired and hot and dirty and uh, uh, as soon as we threw our bags in the floor and they just exploded, you know, and uh, uh, I said, I've got to go wash my face. You know, I just feel so gross. And, and I went into the, the, there was a bathroom there, a little, you call it an ensuite. It's a bathroom in the room. And of course, there's a big gaping hole out to the jungle with no screen, no window. And so anything from the jungle can be in your bathroom, you know, with ease. And so I went in there, there's a pedestal sink, a toilet, and a, there's like a nozzle where there's a shower, all in one little thing like this. And so I'm standing at the pedestal sink, splashing water on my face, 
and I look up above my head, and this is what I see. I mean, it's just right there, just right there above me. And I'm like, okay, here we are. Now, that's not just a spider. And that picture is not zoomed in. That spider is as big as your hand, okay? It's literally this big, and it's hanging right there above my head as I wash my face. And I'm like, okay, the mosquitoes are a problem. You know, the jungle's right there. The window is no window. And so she's probably eating the mosquitoes, right? So let's leave her alone. She right now is not a threat. This is our friend. So let's let her eat the mosquitoes and anything else. I mean, she's this big. She could eat a small lizard or, you know, a cat. But just, we'll leave her there. Anything that comes into the room tonight sees her, we'll, we'll be safe. And so that's fine. And I told Susan, come in here, look up, just so you don't freak out. There it is. You know, we, okay, said hi. We all got it acquainted and went to bed. And so we closed the bathroom door and, and we went to bed. And I got up the next morning and I went in there to, to wash my face and to try to, you know, shave and whatever. And I looked up and said, where's she? She wasn't there. Okay. And so I looked all around the bathroom. I don't see, I mean, it's not a big bathroom, it's just like this big. I don't see her anywhere. And I'm like, okay. And so pardon the crude, I went over to relieve myself. And I'm relieving myself and like, from, there's the pedestal sink. I'm right here. I see big furry legs sticking out behind the pedestal sink. And I'm like, okay, I've located her. She is right there. She must live behind the pedestal sink, you know. It's probably a great place to find, you know, all kinds of insects. And so told Susan, don't freak out. If you go in there to the sink and wash, she's behind the sink. So where your feet are, she'll be right around the corner. She's not going to bother you. She's eating the insects. Let's, let's leave her, leave her alone. None of that was really a problem for us. We're quite used to this. The problem came the next day when I went into the bathroom and couldn't locate her anywhere. And so I looked high and low for her, and then I realized, Brenna, my rookie mistake, my suitcase is open right there. Susan's is over here, and I know, I mean, I'm, I'm an experienced at this. You get what you need out of your suitcase, you zip it back up, you put your shoes up off the floor. I mean, I'm an experienced jungle traveler, and I just forgot everything I knew. You say, well, where is the spider. We still have not located her. I had strong suspicions that she had illegally immigrated to North Texas. Uh, so I've imported a lot of things over the years, and I've learned to take my suitcase into the garage floor, dump it, shake everything before you bring it into the laundry room. I've imported uh, scorpions and cockroaches and just all kinds of stuff over the years as we have traveled to, to very remote places. I, I don't know. I'll let you know in the next few days. We haven't found her yet. But, I mean, if you find her, you'll know it. Uh, she is not petite. Uh, she's a robust woman. And uh, here's what I want to say about this. Uh, I was just thinking about this as I was preparing. I, I love to carry the gospel to faraway places. I've always loved to travel and meet new people. And I'm wired for this. I, I can talk to anybody anywhere. I made friends everywhere I went. You know, on the plane, in the elevator, just everywhere. Never met a stranger. 
And I love doing this, but I want to say this. As much as I'm wired for it, I certainly know what it means to long for home. I definitely know what that feels like. Uh, I have discovered that yearning for home is much more than wanting barbecue and enchiladas. It's much more than longing for a familiar bed or pillow on which to rest your head. Uh, After worshiping in a foreign language, uh, in service after service, one of the great joys of life is coming home to my own covenant family and being able to worship in a language I can understand and being able to express myself and hear you. This is the big one. It's not that I can't express myself there, but I can't hear anybody else express themselves in anything that I can understand. And you just don't understand what it feels like. We take for granted what it's like to hear hundreds and hundreds of your brothers and sisters be able to confess their testimony and worship God and exalt the name of God and to express yourself in worship. God has made us for community. Even you introverts, God's made you for community. And God has also made us for worship. And those two go together. And there should be something about a child of God that longs for worship. If there's not something in you that says, is it Sunday yet? Can we, can we go worship with our family yet? I, I'm, I'm, I'm yearning for that. If that's not within you, I want you to do some soul searching today and ask God, what's broken with me that I don't long to worship you? That I don't long to be with my family and cry out to you in worship and lift your name because that is why you made humans. That is the destiny of humans. And God, can you please let me embrace what is my destiny? This is really what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. Ezra and Nehemiah are a package deal. They are just part one of a story and part two of a story, and they go together. They're really not separable. They're telling the same story as a continuation of the Daniel story. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about longing for home. Because of our sin, God let us be taken captive in exile, and as exiles for 70 years in the land of Babylon... We have not been able to do what our hearts yearn to do. And now we've been strangers in a foreign land for so long. We long for home. We long for worship. And it's a, uh, the whole story is about longing for worship in God's house as much as you long to be in your own house. This is what the story's about. Ezra and Nehemiah and these characters in the Bible are saying, yes, we'd like to go home and rebuild our our own family homes where we came from. But you'll see that's really not the big discussion. The big discussion is we want to go rebuild the temple, God's house. We want to go get something reestablished in Jerusalem. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell uh, the story of God's covenant people now returning from exile to their promised homeland, the two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, span a period of about a hundred years from the time period 539 B.C. to 433 B.C. So we're roughly about a 500-year 
slot here 500 years before the time of Christ. The first return back, they went in waves like caravans. Uh, much the way you see these immigration caravans coming from South America. There's a caravan of, of people coming from Babylon back into the land of Israel, into the Canaan land, which was their ancestral covenant land. The first wave, the first uh, immigration was led by Ezra. Ezra was a scribe and a priest by vocation. So I want you to think about that. He's the one who wrote the Word of God out and copied He was also a priest and ministered vocationally. He was what you would think of as pastoral staff. He was a priest. He brought a team of exiles back from Babylon to to Jerusalem in one of the waves. The return, Ezra and Nehemiah, the second big wave then, or really the third, came led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a regionally appointed governor appointed by King Artaxerxes of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, He was an Israelite, but he was appointed as the provisional governor over Canaan, and he was sent back by Artaxerxes in one of these immigration waves. So here's what I want you to get in your mind. Ezra and Nehemiah, two books in your Old Testament, talk about going home and yearning for home and yearning for worship and yearning to restart uh, and rebuild uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem. I want you to see, though, that one leader, Ezra, uh, was a priest. The other leader, Nehemiah, was a politician. I think it's a very important uh, understanding for us to grasp this morning. Uh, it wasn't just the preacher God is using. It was the politician God is using. God uses both groups of people in the Old Testament to advance His kingdom. I will say it a little different way to you this morning. There's only a handful of people who do what I do. God uses a handful of people who are vocational ministers. But God uses millions of His covenant people who have jobs like you to advance His kingdom. There's more of you than there are of me. You're the majority, and you are the majority way that God makes disciples. You are the majority way that God shares the gospel in a community. You are the majority way that worship happens. You are the big thing that's happening. Yes, that's uh, what I do also, but what I want to say to you is worship and prayer and disciple-making are not the exclusive domain of vocational pastors. They are also the domain of every of God's child. And what you do for a living is as important as what I do for a living. What, what you do every day, if you are a child of God, is as holy as what I'm doing right now. You providing for your family and you working in this community, teaching students and building bridges and, 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 and writing computer programs and, and getting food to market and providing clean water. That's as important as what I'm doing for the whole of humanity. You say, well, isn't the gospel more important? Yeah, but you can share the gospel just like I can while you do what you do. Uh, That's the whole point. Every vocation is holy if you are God's child. Uh, The church, we know, uh, has been broken for many centuries now. And we know what's wrong with it. We, We think we know some steps to fix it. But there's not a wholesale movement right now to correct the brokenness 
of the church community. It is time for a reformation. Uh, it's been a while since the church had a strong reformation. We're definitely due for one. And it's time for Christians everywhere to reclaim that it is their divine vocation, regardless of what you do for a living, it is your divine vocation to image God and to make disciples. That is your life's calling that goes hand in hand with your vocation. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, then your vocation is as important to advancing God's kingdom as any other vocation. You touch lives every day in your vocation. Students and co-workers and city people and, and community people and the general public. You serve people and you touch the lives of people every day. Uh, Jesus said that you were a shining light in a dark place called the world. Whether that is the workplace or whether that is the school place, you are a shining light in this community. You are God's chosen vessel to make the gospel known wherever you go. And the real issue, the, real, the, the issue that God's, why God's kingdom has really stumbled a bit in modern times is the, the misunderstanding that that was the clergy's role, but we have a different role. Listen, for God's kingdom to grow, every believer has to see their life through kingdom lenses. You have to see your vocation through kingdom lenses. And every believer has to embrace the reality that you are called to further the kingdom of God through making disciples. Now, remember what part of history that Ezra and Nehemiah are living in. They are not in the new covenant like you. They are still living in the old covenant, whether you call it the Mosaic or the Sinai covenant. The old covenant that God had with Israel, that is the covenant of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so to be God's covenant people in this old day meant that you agreed to live as God's covenant people following the Mosaic rules that are set forth in the old covenant at Sinai. And you agreed to follow those things of the old covenant, the worship ways, the living ways, the marriage ways, the washing ways, the dietary ways, the Sabbath ways, all of those old covenant rules were the way that they worshipped God. Now that's not the covenant you live in, and I'm not advocating you go back to that. I'm just saying for them to worship God, that's what they had to do. They had to now reestablish that. As God's old covenant people, they had to now go back to the pre-captivity and pre-exile lifestyle of Israel, and they had to reinstitute all of that. It had all been taken away. It had all collapsed. Everything about worship that they knew collapsed for 70 years. And they had to go set that life back up. Now, I've just been thinking about this and COVID a lot as I was preparing. COVID is nothing like being taken captive for a generation, having a lot of your family members slaughtered and being enslaved for 70 years. But I want to tell you, a little virus pretty much collapsed worship in America. Just pretty much shut the whole world down. And right here in our own church, in our own community as well, where we were so dis misinformed or disinformed or underinformed that no one thought they could make a good decision. That's the real problem. 
Does a mask help? Does it not help? You know, who, does anybody even know? Uh, do the shots work or do they not work? You got shots, you still got sick. I don't know. I'm not advocating for anything. I'm just saying it left a lot of confusion everywhere. And uh, people, because of the confusion, just said, well, let's pull back and let's hunker down and let's get in the bunker and let's, you know, see if there's any zombies next week and we'll know what to do from there. It's kind of the mentality everybody took. Uh, I don't know that that, I mean, I don't know if that'll ever happen again. I think shutting everything down was such a traumatic event on the world. I don't know that that'll happen again, even if a pandemic breaks out. It's going to be very, God forbid that happen again. But I don't know if things would play out the same if it happened again. And I, I, I don't know. Just a very weird few years. What I do know is it had a very drastic effect on worship. You were made for worship. You were made for community. You were not made to wear a, 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 a face covering. Uh, you, your eyes were meant to be, your face was meant to be uncovered. We have a preschool here. I know you can't teach kids how to read if you cover your face. We've been living that. And I just know that as a fact. Uh, I know you were made to be in community. You were made to touch. You were made to embrace. You were made for this. And not getting what you were made for really messed a lot of people up emotionally, psychologically. I can tell you, most of the churches of America have still not recovered. Uh, we are a congregation of, you know, 500-ish. Still haven't recovered. And when I'm thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm thinking about what they faced. They have zero worship, and they have to go start it all again. They haven't been shut down for two years. They've been shut down for 70 years. They forgot how to worship. They've raised a whole generation of people who've never worshipped. When you talk about the laws and the rules and the Old Covenant, there's a whole people that have been born and lived their whole adult life and have no idea what you're even talking about. They have to go set all of that up again and reestablish the way that God wanted them to live. Now, Ezra is focused on reestablishing the law of Moses. Ezra has a different focus slightly than Nehemiah. I just want to nuance this for you. Ezra is focused on getting back. Let's get the temple built and let's get the law of Moses reinstituted, the old, the old Sinai law. Why? Because for 70 years in the Babylonian exile, they did not keep the law. They did not worship right. They did not follow that. And you say, what? They could not. They didn't have anything that they needed to worship with. Instead, they had to assimilate into the Babylonian culture like I showed you uh, Mordecai, Esther, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and they're just a handful of thousands and thousands of God's people who were taken captive, fully assimilated into the Babylonian culture. There is no temple. There is no corporate worship. They have not been able to do what God made us to do. Without a temple, now we're Old Covenant. So without a temple and without priests, it was impossible to worship. You couldn't make the required offerings. There's no place to take them. There's nobody to sacrifice them. There's no way, there's no altar to put them on. None of the things are there. Without stores selling single fiber Jewish clothing, 
You can't dress according to what the Mosaic law dictates. You're wearing Babylonian garments. You, you see, without grocery stores selling kosher food, you've got to, it's impossible to follow the Mosaic law. You've got to eat whatever there is to eat. And it wasn't kosher. So it was impossible for them to do what God had made them do because of their sin. Now listen, if you yearn for community after two years of COVID, you can imagine these people are yearning for it after 70 years of slavery and exile. And they want to go back home and they want to rebuild the house of God and they want to come together and sing, how good is he? They want to praise God and worship God and reinstitute what's been missing. Now, Nehemiah's slightly nuanced. Nehemiah's a politician. Nehemiah was the appointed governor and his focus and when we get to the book of Nehemiah, it's much more civil in nature. Uh, he is tasked with rebuilding the city of Jerusalem from a civic point of view. Can your mind just imagine what that entails? He has to rebuild a city. Well, his first order of business is you can't rebuild a city if you're being shot at. So his first order of business, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, you'll see he's going to rebuild the city wall to protect the people inside so that they can then rebuild the city because you can't build while you're constantly being shot at. So he's really going to focus on walls for protection, but then he's going to shift to infrastructure, and he's going to build roads, and he's going to be concerned with water, and he's going to be concerned with sewage, and he's going to be concerned with trash collection, and he's going to be concerned with civil engineering. All of the things that you and I take for granted every day here in Fort Worth, Texas. The things that our local government provides for us to help us have a meaningful, healthy, good society. Now, I know for all of your griping and my griping, notwithstanding, we have incredible schools here in our community. For all of our complaining, we have incredible roads. I've been on the other side of the world four days ago. Trust me, you have incredible roads. If you have a road, you have more than most people. You have incredible roads. Uh, we have a reliable power grid. We have, obviously I wrote this, sitting in Kathmandu. Staring out the window at the slums. I just sitting there thinking of all the things that I, we take for granted. As I watched people living in poverty. I just thinking about the, the safety. The clean air. Susan and I, this is gross, but I'm going to tell you anyway. After traveling for three or four days in, in Kathmandu, we both... Uh, finally checked back into a real hotel and we were really stopped up because of all the dust and pollution and we're sneezing just total black total black uh, you, you thought we were three pack of dayers just total black coming out of our sinuses and I'm just like I sneeze at home in Texas have terrible allergies y'all know that but not like this not because of pollution all this traffic and everything, but we have very clean air. You live in safety. We have hospitals and the best access to health care in the history of the world. We have food. 
There were days when we were hungry and we couldn't find food. I never have that problem in Fort Worth. When are you hungry that you can't find something to eat in Fort Worth, Texas? 24-hour places. If nothing else, go crash a 24-hour Walmart and raid whatever you want to raid. You know, there's food. It's abundant. It's plentiful. It's accessible. It can be instantaneous. You can have something already cooked, put right in your hand and right in your mouth in just a few seconds. We have transportation. Now, I know we have traffic, but we have transportation we have places to live in that are the top standard of the world. We have parks to play in. We have trails to run on. We have health clubs all over the community where we can exercise our bodies and be healthy. We have lakes that are clean. We have rivers that are clean. We have beaches that are not covered in trash. They are clean. We have every form of recreation known to humanity accessible to us. And as I thought about all of those things in a land where none of those things were a true statement, I thought, you know, I should get down on my knees with my church family and that would be a good prayer list right there just to give thanks to God. God is so good. And He has blessed you so richly. And I'm not here to guilt you. Uh, I... I want you to see something this morning that Ezra and Nehemiah are focused on going back and rebuilding Jerusalem. Get that temple going. Let's rebuild the city. But they're not only concerned with that. There's bigger things in play. I want you to see that God is not only concerned with corporate worship, but God has made all of this creation for you. God has designed you and I to be creative like He is. He gave us the authority and the ability to work in creation and develop beautiful societies, to develop schools, to develop cities, to develop progress. He gave us that because He is like that. He gave us authority and ability to develop and to transform and all of us have a mission in society. So uh, what I want you to think about is I want you to think now Jerusalem is in ruins. It's been in ruins for 70 years. It's bombed out. It's in desolation. It would be much like you would see a scene on the news today of Ukraine. We're just rubble and piles of junk and stones and, and, and craters and, and smoke and rubble and dust. That's exactly what Jerusalem looks like when the book of Ezra opens. So Nehemiah will be focused on civil engineering and wall building and infrastructure. So now let's quickly let me get to the proclamation. Remember the night in the book of Daniel when the hand wrote on the wall. They went and got God's vessels and God said, alright, that's the end of the Babylonian Empire. Tonight you'll be dead and, and here comes Medo-Persia and they're, they're going to come in and take control and they'll be the next great empire. When God's hand wrote on the wall, that night the Babylonian Empire ended and the Persian Empire began. Israel's punishment, 70 years of exile for their idolatry, for breaking God's covenant, had now come to an end. When the hand wrote on the wall, not only was Babylon done, but Israel's punishment for idolatry was done, and God was going to send them back. And uh, the, the Persian king who comes in is the one who's going to write the decree to liberate them and send them back. 
Let me say what I've said many times to you. When one generation will not go forward with God, God will let that generation die. And He will raise up a new generation of His people when they come to the age of maturity that they can lead. He will try to revive and reform the mission of God and see if that generation will go forward. Now that's been the history of God's people since there were a God's people. It's even true in the New Covenant era. Uh, the, the modern church will die if they will not move forward and adapt until God can raise up a young generation. So when I look out in the room and I see all the 20 and 30 and 40 year olds in the room, it's very exciting for me. Because you represent a generation that are willing to re-embrace discipleship and re-embrace what, what it means to lead in this generation and get it back on track. When Cyrus the Great now takes control of the great Medo-Persian Empire, he's now, his heart is being moved by God, and he's going to let, issue a decree to let them go back. And he's even going to provide the financing to make it possible. Not only is he going to say, you can go, he's going to say, here's my checkbook, what do you need? Just write it out of the royal treasury, some of that, and he's going to encourage other people to give to the cause as well. So, both Ezra and Nehemiah, when we read their stories later in the coming weeks, they are responding to the law, the decree passed by Cyrus the Great in 559 B.C. as God touches his heart to say, I'm going to move the hand of a world power to let uh, my people come back. I'm reading from Second Chronicles chapter 36. And he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors, until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest, all the time of its desolation it rested, until seventy years were completed, fulfilling the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now you remember what a prophet is. That's a covenant enforcer. And so God sent a covenant enforcer named Jeremiah to say, if you guys don't repent of your sins, God's going to clobber us. And he's going to let these other nations invade us and we're going to be captives. You better repent of your idolatry. But people wouldn't listen. And so Jeremiah said, then for 70 years, you're going to be exiles in a foreign land and you're going to be enslaved. And it's exactly what happened. So now let me fast forward to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. It's a very short chapter. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his entire realm. He also put this in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, that he may... And may be, and may their God be with them. Verse 4. And in any locality where Jewish survivors may now be living, the people, general public, are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. There's the proclamation. So now Ezra and Nehemiah are responding to that and they're going back. Now, here's where I want to just really have you focus. Yes, one's going to build the temple and reestablish the Mosaic Law and the other's going to do civil engineering and rebuild the city. 
but I want you to lift your eyes a little higher than just temple building and city building. Just raise your spiritual awareness to there's something bigger happening in, now in, in history. There's something bigger happening in Ezra and Nehemiah than just clearing away rubble and rebuilding infrastructure. Law-keeping and wall-building were manifestations of something bigger. A purpose that Cyrus didn't... He was being used of God. He didn't even fully comprehend the big purpose that God was doing. He was like, yeah, God's this and God's that. There are lots of gods. Let me keep the Jews happy. You go build a temple for your God, whoever that is. You know, he was just kind of very casual about that. He doesn't realize there's something even bigger in play It's not merely about going back to Jerusalem. It's really about going back to God. For Ezra and Nehemiah, they believed that a successful return by God's people was really a predicated on a theological task. In other words, it's no... Moving you from point A to point B is just geography. But moving you from exile to worshiping God is your divine calling. The bigger thing that's happening is not relocating people geographically or giving them clean water and and cleared out streets. The bigger task was a theological task. How do we take a generation of people who haven't worshipped and bring them back to worshiping God? How do we return to worship? Now, you're going to hear me say that a few times because this is the real theme I want to drive home now. This is all about a return to worship. Returning to worship is bigger than a temple. Returning to worship is bigger than a wall. The temple and the wall were just the means to an end. They were the means to get worship going again. So it's not about getting the water going and getting the building built. That's necessary. But the real thing that's happening is getting us worshiping God again. And we need a building and we need water and we need streets in order to be able to do that. They're the means to the bigger end of restoring worship. Now what I want to challenge you before I bring this to a conclusion is I want to challenge you this morning. That's really what we need in our lives this morning. What we need is a dedicated commitment to return to worship. For some of you this morning, that will mean you're going to have to get up on Sunday morning and get, set your pajamas aside and put adult clothes on and get in the car and drive back down to the place that we worship corporately and re-engage with the community. There is nothing to fear but fear itself. Kennedy said, and and learn to trust God and re-engage in the purpose for which you were created. For some of you listening to my voice, returning to worship will mean a renewal of worship. You can be physically present, but not really engaged. So let me just deal with this for a moment. And, and once you've been disengaged, I want to be honest with you, it's not easy to engage. It, it takes some time. Uh, I, I, I can relate 
a lot of things in my life, and I've been two weeks without the gym. Do you know what my struggle is going to be this week? Re-engaging with that which I desperately need. I need it. You know what? I even want it. But wanting it, needing and going are two different things. Uh, I worked out yesterday at home. But for a half an hour, I stood there looking at those dumbbells. And I said, you know, I see them and I want them. But here I am, frozen in place. And I watched a little football instead. And then I worked out a little bit. But all I'm saying is, spiritually, a lot of things are very similar. You can be present but not engaged. And even though you want to engage, sometimes it's tough. And all I will say to you is just keep going. Keep, keep going. Keep, stay with it until it re-engages. Okay? That's all I'm going to say. You, that's what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm going to go to the gym if I have to force myself. And I'm going to stand there until I get motivated enough to pick up something. Okay? And I want to say to you, now we shouldn't really have, we should want to worship God, I get it, but it's different in being here and being fully engaged. And so for many of us, what I want to challenge you with is, you challenge yourself and say, listen, I, I want to give, I want to sing, I want to really hear, I want to participate, I want to pray, I want to apply, because I want to be transformed, fully engaged. For, for many, a return to worship is different because you're new here at Cornerstone. You may be new in the community. And, and you're looking for a church family where you can belong, where you can make some lifelong relationships and some long-term investments in, in other people. And a return to worship for you is really about connecting and it's really about committing to a new covenant community of believers here at Cornerstone. As believers in America, we are not captives. We have not experienced this in being enslaved by a foreign enemy or, or anything like this. We're not exiles in that manner. But something is in play in our country that, that's got some similarities. Our situation is that as followers of Christ, we are being culturally exiled, even as we live on the same streets that we've always lived on. Even though we're in the same community, maybe that we've always been in, something is changing around us. And the community that's once showcased our churches, the community that once showcased places of worship, the community that gave great credence to hear what men and women of God had to say, for, uh, what, what spiritual leaders were, were saying, a God that was once honored and respected in our community. The, uh, we've, we we're in a different place now. Christianity is not the driving influence of our culture. And although we're a nation of laws, we can see a shift to lawlessness. We can see changing attitudes towards law enforcement. It's happened. It's profound. In our country, we are all aware that there is a 50-50 division between red politics and blue politics. It is stark. It is real. It is not going away. And those who govern our country seem to be more interested in maintaining power, whichever party it is, than actually legislating in a way that will unite people and, and bring civic harmony and bless the people whom they should be serving. Soon, I think we will be asking, do we have a safe place to practice our faith? We may be asking one day, will it be safe 
to be a practicing Christian in my school or in my university, both as a student or a teacher. We may be asking ourselves one day soon, will it be safe to pray in public? Will I be penalized for expressing my faith in my career? And behind that backdrop, we should be asking the even bigger questions, which are the worship questions. Have we forgotten that we are spiritual beings foremost, not physical beings only? Have we forgotten that we were made to image God? Have we forgotten that we were made for worship? As we study Ezra and Nehemiah, let's be challenging ourselves to return to worship. A couple of quick things. Let me give you the timeline so I don't have to cover this over the next few weeks. The Ezra-Nehemiah timeline looks like this. There are, three, there are really two books, but are one book, if you want to think of it that way. But the whole timeline is three divisions. The first return was under the governor Zerubbabel, and uh, a, a, another governor that's been appointed by, by Artaxerxes, and the priest Joshua. So if you hear in the, in the reading in the next few weeks, Joshua or Zerubbabel, that's the first return. It's Ezra chapters 1 to 6. I may not cover it all just for sake of being able to tell a great story. The temple will be rebuilt around 515, and renewed worship cannot begin without a renewed temple. The second phase of the return was led by Ezra about 50 years later. This is Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 7 to 10, will tell the story of Ezra, where he actually comes on the scene now, and he reinstates the, the Mosaic law around 485, and renewed worship cannot happen, in the Old Covenant at least, until the Mosaic Law comes in and they begin to keep the feasts and they are once again obedient to God, God's laws. The third wave of migration takes place under Nehemiah. It's led by the governor, uh, the appointed governor, Nehemiah. He's a Jew, but he's been appointed governor by the king of Persia. And around 440 B.C. or so, uh, uh, he now, Nehemiah and Ezra, overlap. And so what you see is really a joint venture between the clergy the priest Ezra, and the politician Nehemiah, and you see them join hands. In the book of Nehemiah, Ezra will show up with some talking there. They are partners in this, and the politicians and the priests are working together to restore what was lost. Now let me say very quickly, it takes years. This is a hundred year period of restoration. It takes time to restore what a society loses. It's very hard to put things back right overnight. And I just want to make this on a personal application for you. You may have made some terrible decisions. You may have backslid. You may have committed some sins against God. And you may have fallen away from worship. And I want to acknowledge it is not easy to get back. It does take some time. And that begins with repentance. It begins by saying to God, I've messed up and I want to come back. God, would you help me get back what I have lost? And some of you are living this, and you know exactly what I'm saying. You're feeling it. You feel like you lost ground over the last few years, and you're like, i got to catch back up. You see people making disciples in our congregation. You see 17- and 18-year-olds on the other side of the world just lighting it up for Jesus Christ, risking their lives, risking it all for Christ. And we who are middle-aged are sitting here, been saved 30 or 40 years, saying, what have I done for Jesus? I know, it's real, isn't it? 
And it's a challenge. And what I want to say is, don't just acknowledge that something needs to be fixed. Go ahead and engage. It may take some time to get to where you need to be, to get fully engaged in worship. But for heaven's sake, don't just sit idle when you know you need to be doing something. Be willing to make some changes. Now, let me just broach the first return. There's a very short chapter. Let me read five, six verses and we'll have it done. Here's the first return. Then the family heads of Judah, I'm reading from Ezra 1.5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, they prepared to go, here's the first wave, and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and valuable gifts in addition to free will offerings. It takes a whole lot of giving to get something done. Because money is what you use to buy food, supplies, bulldozers, dynamite, gates. Uh, It takes money to make this happen. Don't get tense on me yet. I'll address it in a minute. Moreover, King Cyrus, verse 7, brought out all the articles that belonged to the temple of the Lord. Oh, this is getting interesting now. The new king went and found all those goblets. Remember that? They come back into the story yet again. He went and found all the treasure that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his idol god. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, had them brought to Midrath as a treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Very careful transition of a, of a what do you call that, Alan, when you take property? Uh, uh, there's like a, you, you document it and put it in a bag and hand it to the right pr- chain of authority. So that nothing's lost in the inventory from the holy vessels here. It's incredibly valuable treasure. And then they start chronicling what the treasure was. Verse 9, this is the inventory. A gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. Verse 11 says, in all there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Quite a treasure. And Sheshbazar brought all of these along with the exiles when they came from Babylon to Jerusalem. You say, why is this in the Bible? Because it wants you to know that this is a continuation of that Daniel story now. You went into captivity. It was all about the vessels showing up in the story. And now the vessels have been handed off so they could go back and reinstitute the worship of God. The spotlight has fallen multiple times on these holy vessels that were taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And it's not as much about the vessels as it is what the vessels represent. Listen carefully. Those vessels represent the worship of God. They were used in the worship of God. They were in the temple of God. And they were only consecrated and sanctified for that worship. They're connected to worship whenever they show up. So whenever the story mentions them, this is why you know the story is about renewing worship. The big thing that's happening is renewing worship. When they were plundered and carried away, worship ceased. When they were placed into the treasured house of the idols of Babylon, God was being mocked and insulted, humiliated. When these goblets were brought into Belshazzar's feast, and he and all of his prostitutes are toasting the idol gods 
out of God's cups. It was blasphemy. And God judged and destroyed the Babylonian Empire that very night. So now when the Persian king releases the treasured vessels and says, take them, you're accountable, sign for them, put them in the Brinks truck, take them back to Jerusalem. What's happening in the story is God is saying, let's get worship going again. Let's call God's people back to the house of God. Let's revive the people of God. Let's restore worship. You say, how is this happening? Because God's moving the heart of a pagan king. And the pagan king is the one making the decrees. And God has now released His people so that they can go back and do what their covenant has called them to do. To be God's people living in God's place, furthering God's mission. God has, in our thinking, empowered them, enriched them, so that they can go do what God has called them to do. Let me close just by saying this. I believe this is why you are free. I struggle a lot when I come back from a trip like this and see people suffering, and I think about the freedom that I have over here, and I never want to guilt you. It's not, it's not nothing like that. But I often ask, then, then how are we free and why are we free? I think we're free because God has put us here to be free. This is our lot. I hope it will always be this way for us and our people here. God has put us here. Now, it's not like it was, it's handed to you, but somebody in our history must have died for this. Somebody must have paid a great price for this. Because all you and I have ever known is freedom. It's been a great blessing to our lives. And I'll often ask myself, God, why have you chosen that I should be here and I should be free? And the only answer I have is because God wanted me to be an instrument to advance His mission. And I needed to be free and able to do that. God wanted you to worship and you needed to be free and able to do that. God wanted us to make disciples everywhere people would hear, and we had to be free in order to be able to do that. God wanted us to build churches all over the world and to help people all over the world, and we had to be prosperous in order to do that. We had to be blessed by God in order to be used by God to be a blessing. And I believe that God has given you liberty to move among the nations so that you can further the church's mission of advancing God's kingdom by sharing the gospel and making disciples. And I'm not bashful this morning to say to you, we need to double our missions giving. The world is open right now, and we need to strike while the iron is hot. For several years, you know, we were just, just doing so many things missionally, and we said this will never end, but it did end. And for about three years there, we were really shackled in what we could do overseas. Our disciples hunkered down and we hunkered down. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's open. It's open for business and the gospel is open for business. And we need to revive our missions giving. We need to double it. We need to do something really substantial because the opportunity is right now. God has given you as Americans favor among the nations so that new covenant people can make disciples globally.
and we can build churches wherever disciples are thriving. We can advance the worship of God into pagan lands with unprecedented opportunity. We can do it with such speed that it will make your head spin right now. In this old covenant model, it will take them a hundred years to get things set back up. There's no such thing as a bulldozer. It'll take them a hundred years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, get everything back. It's a, it's a long process to restore what was lost. We can move right now with lightning speed to establish congregations around the world. One of our disciples will be going to Costa Rica this week. And we think the, the country of Costa Rica is about to open up for your disciple-making in an unprecedented way by February of 23 in the coming months, okay? Listen, uh, we're about to plant another congregation in the country we were just in. Uh, we can do it with speed and we can do it with agility right now, but there is a cost involved in that. I think Cornerstone, since I've been your pastor in these a couple of decades, we've already built more than 50 churches. My prayer for you is that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we're about to do. I want you to have a big vision. Uh, and you may be saying, well, how many more congregations are in our future? Well, that's largely up to us. That's mathematics, really, and faith. That's really largely up to us. Each individual family will have to decide where our priorities lie. And I want to say it to you in this way, because uh, I know where you live and I know how you live because I live the same way. And I want to say to you, yes, build your own house. Buy a nice one, would you? Eric, buy a good one. Garrett, buy a nice one. Uh, buy your house, at, then use it for making disciples. That's what we believe our homes are for in this church. Uh, buy all the space that you need, but remember, you'll never use all the space that you've bought. So don't go crazy. Yes, you need transportation. Buy a reliable vehicle. Listen, I'd go further than that. Buy a fast one. Buy one with a roar. Buy, buy a technological one. Uh, buy a luxurious one if you want to. But I want you to know, most of your brothers and sisters have very dirty feet. I've, I've just been living with them. They're stained. Their toes are splayed. They've only wore flip-flops their entire life. Dollar, dollar store flip-flops. I mean, really cheap, cheap flip-flops. Not the good flip-flops. The one that the little thing will pull through, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, those. And their feet are stained and dirty because they walk down those kind of streets their whole life. This past week, you, through us, uh, what, I think Susan and I counted, we bought 15 pairs of shoes last week and put them on some feet that hadn't, didn't have good shoes. You, Cornerstone, through us last week, bought a lot of outfits. We, we took some people shopping and we just said, just pick out whatever you want. We put some decent clothes on our disciples. Most of you will retire in wealth and most of you will live a, leave a very generous inheritance to your children. And I want to say to you, that's right. That's the way it should be. You should do that. But make sure that as a child of God, 
that you're advancing the kingdom of God also through your legacy. Your kids will spend what you give them. You make sure that God is in your will. You make sure that you're leaving a legacy that's spiritual also. Because you are spiritual people. My dream has been before my transition in my career happens to slowing down a little bit. That our mission account would have two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in it. The market's at an unprecedented bottom right now. We can put a couple hundred thousand into missions account right now into investments. You realize we'd be drawing a hundred thousand dollars in interest at some point in the future. It'd be funding your projects. You'd be building multiple churches a year as a congregation. Fifty would be left in the dust way back here. <laughs> You'd be going crazy for, for missions. Same with global effects. That needs to be two goals of this church. In the coming years, we need to do something so remarkable for the kingdom of God that when Christ returns, he's going to say to you, come here, I want to introduce you to some Asian people. Maybe you've never met before, but they sure know who you are. Come, Cornerstone family, I want to introduce you to some Nicaraguans who you've never met, but they sure know who you are. They are my children because they heard the gospel funded through you in this church. I want to introduce you to some Costa Ricans and some Romanians and some Indians and some Manipuris and some Thai and some Chin and some Kachin and some Karin tribes from Myanmar. You may have never met them, but they're your disciples because you shared the gospel through your missions giving well done. Now, if you want to know what's happening with Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what's happening. They are trying to return home and restore worship of Almighty God. And if you want to know what's happening right here at Cornerstone, we're trying to do the exact same thing. We're trying to restore the worship of God and the mission of Jesus Christ to make disciples of every nation. But all of that begins really when God's people make a commitment to come back to worship. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We're going to take communion. It's just a brief communion ceremony right here. Very brief memorial. Before we approach the communion table, I want to just challenge you right now. God's maybe speaking many things to your heart. I want to say above all to you, Cornerstone, well done. Well done. It's very hard to preach about returning to worship when the people who are here have returned to worship. You're here because you are ready to worship. For the most part, you're very engaged in worship. And I want to commend you and I want to praise you and I want to honor you because you are God's covenant people who've got it right. But even among you and I here this morning, There are some places in our life where we've let some things lapse and go backwards a little bit and go cold a little bit. Can you find some of those places this morning that some of those areas of your life that you need to talk to God about this morning and say, God, you know, I need to get back. I was very faithful in this and I I have not been. And you and God need to talk about that right now. Whether it's at your seat or whether it's here at this altar, I just want to challenge you. Renewing worship begins 
right now in the house of God where we're worshiping as one big covenant family. Don't say tomorrow I'll renew my worship right now. Say, God, my heart is yours. I want to recommit. I want to renew my life. I want to restore some things that I've let slide. Maybe for the first time you're here in the house of God and God's speaking to your heart about your relationship with Him. Maybe you've never received Christ as your Savior. We have several of our deacons available. They're right in the back of the room right now. And if you need to pray with someone about your salvation, certainly nothing to be embarrassed about. Something we've all done. Something we're cheering for you to do. At any point in this service, you just slip out of your seat and go to the back and take the hand of a deacon and just say, pray for me. I need, I need to know about salvation. I, I'm confused or I, I've never done this. Would you pray with me and show me what my next steps are? Father, we bow before you this morning as a covenant community. And Lord, what we're about to do means something deep to us. Because you are so important to us. Lord, we're thinking about the price that you paid, your death your burial and your resurrection to make us a part of your family so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be in this covenant with you. God, we love you so much and we're so thankful for what you've done. You're worthy of our worship. God, would you help us as we try to restore and engage in worship? God, it may take a little while. Would you be patient with us as we try to get consistent again and try to reorder our lives around you as the very center? Lord, I want to repent for this community, for our church, for hundreds and hundreds of people who have neglected worship. God, forgive us of that. For this purpose, we were created, and God, we've let you down. And God, I pray that as you call Cornerstone back, and as you call other Christians in this community back to their churches, Lord, that as a state, as a region, as a as a nation, Lord, our hearts would begin to come back to you, and our bodies, and our minds, and our worship would be coming back to you. May you be exalted, Lord. And I know that not only will transform our lives, it will transform our community and our country. Father, bless us as we take communion. In Jesus' name we pray.